Hello from Austin and welcome to episode 121 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Wednesday, May 15th, 2019. I'm Bobby Chesman. I'm Steve Vladek. My federal court students are two hours and 45 minutes into their exam. Oh my God. Okay, so we better get this done before they come out of the exam room and come... What, storming my office? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that would be a bad sign. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm grading the exams mm. uh, from the Spring Law of the Intelligence Community <laughs> course, so soon you'll be in my world and very happy for things like this. I'm it's, already, I'm already, it's an excuse not to grade. I'm already behind on grading my national security exams. This, this oh, yeah, it would have been good if you'd done that first. I am doing that first. I just, you know, some stuff has been happening. Yeah, yeah. Like what? What are we going to talk about this week? Um, ask not for whom the bells toll, Bobby. They toll for... They toll for everybody the who lives in King's Landing. Game of Thrones was so good. We will have lots to say in our Frivaldi segment as usual. Um, the Game New York Knicks did not win the NBA draft lottery. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! <laughs> that that was you know the the sheer fact that this avalanche of of attention was focused on the Knicks, though they they had no better chance I mean, than two other it teams. It was fourteen percent. Like I mean, yeah, uh, it was like know, very unlikely it, they would get it. It's typical Knicks fans. It's like delusional. Like you know, it's totally our. They're gonna rig the lottery. Again Everybody's like they did, coming. Like they did from when we got Patrick Ewing. Yeah, we're, we're gonna get Kevin Durant. We're gonna get Kyrie. We're gonna get Zion Williamson. Okay. Not so much. I, I'm gonna go zero for three on that. Yeah, well, they might get Kyrie, but I'm not sure. Well, I'm be... not sure that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, I might pass on that. How about that? Maybe they can um, get Carmella. So there actually is stuff happening, although sort of not like pure, not sort of the heartland of what we talk about, like not pure, straightforward legal developments. We want to talk a bit about the the drum beats, um, increasingly loud drum beats coming out of the administration about military force against Iran. Yeah, we'll certainly actually have a lot of core things to talk about in that respect, because I think we should use this occasion not to try to predict the future, but simply to recognize that there there's a lot of people worried that there might be armed hostilities. Let's talk about the War Powers Resolution Although and is, Article I mean, 2 as it relates to that. It is episode 121, so maybe predicting the future is appropriate. 1.21 gigawatts! Exactly. Marty! <laughs> See? Nice. Exactly. I mean, the sad thing is we both walked in here and we're like, oh, it's 121. Back to the future! Exactly. <laughs> Um, so we have Iran. Um, there's some. Uh, we had three rulings yesterday by the Court of Military Commission review in Guantanamo cases. None, I think, are sort of exceptional or headline generating, um, but still, we might you know might merit a brief tour down to Guantanamo, where also apparently there's another issue with a military judge seeking a job as an immigration judge. <laughs> Speaking of brief tours, Speaking of brief tours, <laughs> nice indeed. Um, you have some some other developments you want to raise. Yeah, on we've the, got a, a number. As always, there's DOJ National Security Division developments. I've got a Foreign Agents Registration Act matter to note. Um, I especially want to dwell on the seizure of a well-named North Korean vessel. Uh, And then we've got a (laughs) prosecution for uh, disclosure of classified and national Mm. defense information that lines up in an interesting way because we can compare it to the Assange situation with Chelsea Manning. We can talk about uh, things like that, Snowden. And then also the uh, effort to disqualify James Cole from representing Huawei. Yes, which I found a, a really interesting and unusual motion from the Justice Department. Uh, and, and, and one might argue a really interesting and unusual uh, client retention move by a former senior uh, Justice Department official. So right. I guess those are the uh, those are the stakes there. There is that. I think that'll cover our serious topics, and then we will get to the really serious. Our stuff. second to last chance to truly indulge in Game of Thrones frivolity. I mean, or 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 depression. By the way, I, I discovered yesterday. I've I've been listening to some uh, some of the Game of Thrones fan podcast uh, in 
Oysters, Clams, and Cockle Shells is one of the most popular ones, a really great show. Ooh. And uh, listening to Monday's episode of it, I, I heard one of the wonderful co-hosts mention that he lives in Austin. So we're well, going to have to try to, we're gonna have to, try to, I don't know if we can induce them to do a crossover episode, although it would be really fun to do a national security law and Game of Thrones. I mean, especially this week, given the massive war crimes that were committed. Well, we'll Spoiler yeah, we'll, alert. We'll, we will talk about that. So I, I won't say by whom or against whom. I will just say well, that I, there were war crimes, Bobby. I, I certainly have views on that. And, uh, Maybe we can at least no, not uh, meet, on, not on whether they were war crimes. No, no, no. Okay, but on 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 whether that's any different from any other day in the office. Uh, mm. It's more a question of who rather than what. Well, that. But that, let's yeah, not yeah, let's yeah, not spoil yeah. anything. Um, all right, let's start off with war powers and the possible march towards conflict with Iran. Steve, set the stage for us. What's been going on lately? Like, how is this different over the past week from from prior times? I, I mean, I'm I'm so I, I so don't think anything has changed, but the the, the the what seems to have changed is that um, senior administration officials, although I'm not entirely sure that it's plural, who refuse to go on the record, keep giving stories to reporters about how behind the scenes the government is increasingly looking at military options against Iran, you know, ramping up the possibility of go of using force directly against Iran. Um, you know, someone made a joke on Twitter, right, that there was a story that referred to um, three unnamed high-level administration sources, and the tweet said, all of whom are named John Bolton. <laughs> so one possibility is that Bolton himself, who, no surprise, he's, he's quite the well-known Iran hawk, uh, is putting these stories out there. Uh, I assume you're taking the view that that would be to try to you know, generate the reality, to set the narrative that this is indeed something that's coming. Right. Give me the pictures, I'll give you the war. Another another possibility is if it's if it's him or people working for him uh, spreading these stories, that it's in the nature of flashy gunboat diplomacy, just warning you, we're not actually going to do this, but we want you to feel, we want to increase the right. pressure on you by putting rattle, the story Rattle on the saber. But of course, it also could be unnamed officials who are not happy that internally, in fact, uh, Bolton has arranged for these these briefings and presentations to the NSC on what the big big footprint military options would be, and that this is an effort to alarm people to get get attention to it before it gets too oh, much Oh, maybe like a like a, a sort of a, a canary in the coal mine situation. Yeah, exactly. Like, hey, this is happening. People ought to know. Which has indeed generated a lot of anxiety and a lot of pushback. So that could be what's going on. I'm with you on anxiety. I'm not sure I'm with you on pushback. Oh, uh, you're pushing back, aren't you? I don't count. Oh, well, with that attitude, you'll never count. <laughs> Wayne Gretzky once said. Listen, there are some contexts where I count, right? But, but you know, I have no ability to vote to introduce or vote in favor of legislation at the moment. Well, yeah, and query whether, you know, whether that's the context that's going to be the determining one. So anyway, but all this is to say that there seems to be, Bobby, if nothing else, a ratcheting up in the level of noise surrounding the prospect of potential hostilities with and against Iran. No question. So so the big story that really got heads to turn that was different in kind was news that there had been presentations on real military options, including big footprint options. I think that the number given, which is itself an interesting number, was 120,000 uh, troops deployed to, to carry out some particular type of operation. Um, a lot of people saying, well, good Lord, if we're going to do this, that's not the right number. Um, and did we not learn anything about trying to do this with a light, relatively light footprint? Uh, the real number ought to be something more like, were it to be done, you know, a million or half a million. Um, and of course, the larger the number, the more anxious people would get. Therefore, the number is sort of depicted as small. Uh, but that's not the only news development. The other news development is over the past 48 hours, uh, increasing in, in seemingly quite real concerns uh, within Iraq 
about the prospect of an attack. Usually this is being framed as someone's going to do something to U.S. Uh, related personnel or other Western personnel, uh, perhaps to targeting dependents or, or diplomatic personnel, and that it would be done by people acting at the direction of or as proxies of the Iranians. When you combine these stories, that's where it gets very interesting, of course, because right. the, the, the idea of we're going to go ahead and just have a 2003 redux uh, use of military force standing alone against the current backdrop as a status quo clearly presents lots of serious legal as well as policy, political and diplomatic issues. Um, but if you add in the possibility of a, uh, a bloody provocative attack that would get cited as an instigating cause, that changes the story on all those dimensions to some extent. Sure. And I think the other thing is it's, it's, it's been interesting to see how our allies have been reacting. So there was this you know, real controversy, what, yesterday, where a senior British military official said things that were, that then had to be walked back because apparently it was inconsistent with the U.S. position. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if we get to walk that back, but, uh, you know, a British general basically downplayed the, the idea that the threat is changing right. or is different in kind, uh, and CENTCOM, or big DOD, uh, countered that with a different view. Right. Um, and then today there's this whole thing about uh, the German, uh, the German, what, delegation in Iraq and how they're outside the green zone and so they're especially vulnerable. So they've been, you know, restricting the travel of their personnel. Like, I mean, you know, people are reacting on the ground this week, Bobby, in ways that suggest that there might be more there there than we've seen previously. Oh, I think the fa- I think there's no doubt that there is some sort of intelligence suggesting that there's a different in kind threat to Western personnel in general in Iraq. And that, of course, is our soft underbelly where we are most exposed to uh, Iranian pushback, retaliation, what have you. A lot of people in recent years have tended to focus on the idea that, well, Iran's developed a remarkable cyber capacity. So if they want to punch back at us, they'll go cross domain. We, we go sanctions. We threaten conventional military action. They go cyber. They go cross domain where they can fight more effectively. Um, that forgets the way we used to traditionally think about Iran's asymmetric capability, and that is through Hezbollah, and now, of course, through its various potentially influenceable or directable uh, uh, sympathizers in Iraq itself. And that's where um, the United States and its allies have the most people within physical reach relatively easy, which is not to say that Iran or its proxies couldn't do something elsewhere, right. but clearly it's that the most risky environment would be Iraq. That makes tons of sense. And the fact that it's not just, you know, the State Department has ordered all non-essential personnel out for the United States. Um, that is itself pretty telling, but you can dismiss it and say, well, you know, it's coming from the top, et cetera. I don't think that kind of order gets given just as some sort of policy convenience. Um, but the fact that uh, our allies are also making similar moves uh, is, is something. So, Steve, to turn it to the legal side of this, maybe let's talk a little bit about the Oh, yeah, the law. Yeah, there's the law. And that is, you know, moving to things we know about, um, the War Powers Resolution. Maybe we could start there and kind of relate that to um, not war powers in general, but specifically to the piece of the spectrum of authorities or actions that constitute the war powers that you might call the deployment power. So to me, part of what's going on here is the the people lumping on the legal debates, lumping everything into a single box as if either either the president can do everything or he can do nothing. Let's disaggregate it. Just talking about deployments, it's, I think, common ground between us that in ordinary peacetime circumstances, uh, the president has 
largely unbridled discretion to move forces from here to there around the world. And it happens every day. Presidents of both parties moving or, or the DOD under the president's authority moving naval forces, air forces, land forces, as the case may be. Yep. Uh, it starts getting tricky the closer you move down the spectrum towards deploying into hostilities. And, of course, at that point, we've got to talk about the War Powers Resolution, which is a statute that, um, to boil it down to its key constituent parts, requires, yes, there's something about consulting, but for our purposes, uh, notification to Congress within 48 hours of deployment into hostilities or into situation where hostilities are imminent which is an interesting and debatable, uh, I it's reasonably, anticipated. Right, right, it, where, where, I don't where, think it says reasonably, but I think it's anticipated right, possibilities. Right. Um, so there's a whole gray zone around what, <laughs> using that, that <laughs> particular phrase, there is a gray zone around what exactly counts there. Uh, and then once you have that situation, once the notification trigger is, is in place, then you have the clock. You have the 48 hours for the notice. You have 60 days uh, with a little 30-day uh, fudge at the end of it, to withdraw forces unless Congress has authorized the deployment in the meantime or the intervention in the meantime. So here, there, there we've already seen some saber rattling in terms of referencing uh, a carrier task force, which people are saying, like, well, actually, that was in route in sort of an ordinary way anyways. That was just a marketing rebranding of what it was doing. But we've had a Patriot missile battery uh, redirected. Uh, are we at the stage yet, do you think, where the notification is required? I don't think so. I mean, I think, you know, especially the, the whole thing about the Lincoln, right, the USS Abraham Lincoln, it was so silly because, like, it was so easy to figure out that it, the deployment it was orders, already going. Like, you know, <laughs> it's on the Internet, people. Um, <laughs> so I, I don't think, I mean, to me, right, so far what's actually, what actually seems to be happening on the ground looks like standard fare, you know, redeployment of uh, even the even the Patriot missile battery. I mean, by sure. itself, that that to me isn't. Yeah, we there. move them for defensive purposes, right. including anticipated threats all the time. Right, that, so, that my, can't count. No, I, I mean, my, my concern. So so, all right. I, let me be a bit of a conspiracy theorist for a second. Right, my concern is that we get some kind of Gulf of Tonkin. Um, um, episode, right, where um, some either very, very marginal, real, or not even real sort of skirmish um, is there is then used as a pretext for dramatically ramping up these deployments, right? A, for a actually, Persian Gulf resolution a per, scenario. A, a Persian Gulf resolution scenario, right? That, um, you know, and, and it's, I mean, it's not complete, just... Complete with torpedo boats. Complete and, uh, with torpedo boats and, you know, and complete with, uh, 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 um, you know, the UN. I mean, like, you know, I just... I, this, this, I see history repeating here, and it's like, you know, what do you do to what, what well, can so be done to stop it? Let's bring that around to the WPR, since the WPR, the War Powers Resolution, yeah. was very much consciously a response to the, the perceived lessons of Vietnam, including the uh, perceived lessons of the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution. So it would say that if your scenario were to unfold, and let's so let's imagine that. Uh, you know, probably not a U.S. Navy vessel, but maybe an American flag tanker or an Allied tanker. Something happens in the Gulf. Shots, shots fired. Shots fired. And um, and this is cited as provocation. So step one would be that we've now got a situation of asserted self-defense, right? That would be the argument. Mm -hmm. And that's assuming, by the way, and let's let's put a pin in this, come back to it. That's assuming that the, the administration would not say, hey, we've got existing statutory authority under one of the AUMFs. Let's come back to that. <clears throat> um, so assuming they don't make that argument, the argument would be that the president has authority to direct the use of military force in some form of defense, either defensive nationals, force protection, or maybe even trying to make an, a larger argument about either direct national self-defense of the United States or collective self-defense of our allies, depending on 
what the circumstances are, but it's a self-defense argument. Um, under the War Powers Resolution, the way it would, would in theory work out is uh, force begins to be used, the administration gives notice, probably written as consistent with, though not necessarily admitting it's required by the War Powers Resolution. Then the clock starts ticking, and under the War Powers Resolution, Steve, uh, would there, by the terms of the WPR and in that circumstance, would there need to be an AUMF to follow on in order to keep forces in theater 60 days? Or if you've claimed national self-defense attacking the United States, are you good to go even under the WPR's own terms? I mean, in theory, if it's, de- if it's self-defense, the WPR doesn't apply, right? Because the WPR expressly carves out whatever inherent authority the president has under Article 2. And I think you and I agree that there's at least some self-defense authority under Article 2. Certainly so. And so so we'd have this situation where, obviously, critics would be saying, this isn't that situation. You're exploiting it. As you say, it's a, it's sort of a, you know, it's a seizing the moment to something that's not really self-defense to make it more. Of course, that begs the question, is that really the right characterization? It's certainly possible Iran could do something that would, in fact, trigger these authorities. And it could, in fact, be a proper invocation of the authority. Um, but but the point is, there will then be these muddy debates about whether the War Powers Resolution uh, clock has has started running or if indeed it never starts running because of the nature of the defensive measure. But of course, our, our pen a moment ago, let's come back to it. I think the administration would not stand on what we might call a naked self, uh, naked Article 2 self-defense claim. It would say, yeah, we've got that, but also... Surely, they, I predict they would invoke both the 2002 Iraq AUMF and the 2001 Al-Qaeda AUMF, where we, every six months or so, get these, you know, these stories that drip and drab out saying that, oh, there, there are Al-Qaeda Iran ties and, you know, that this guy's been sheltered there, etc. So I think that you'd see all three of those arguments put out there. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Is that likely? Yes. Yeah. And what, do you, and what do you think? Is that persuasive? No. You don't, you don't like the AUMF arguments? Neither of them. I mean, so the, so the 2002 Iraq AUMF, um, you know, to me, I mean, it's a thin read if the whole, I mean, if Iran is attacking Iraq, right, then I could, I could see the argument that there's some support insofar as Iraq is now our, our partner and our ally, um, that there's some support in the 2002 Iraq UMF, right? There's a conversation to be had there. Right. Not necessarily persuasive, but that's right. a, it's at least got the right nexus. But unlike the 2001 UMF, the 2002 UMF does, does have some specific idea of where the conflict is supposed to be, yeah. to wit, Iraq. So if the provocation is the Persian Gulf of Tonkin, right. can we call it that? The Persian Gulf of Tonkin scenario would that, By the way, episode title. Ooh, hold on. Write it down. The Persian, Persian Gulf, Gulf of, of Tonkin that's, scenario. That's actually pretty good. Uh, I, I was going to go with this is the wise, honest podcast for reasons we'll explain in yes, a moment. Yes, I know, but, but I, I think... Perfect. No, but this is actually more substantive. By the way, uh, listeners, in case you're wondering, last week we asked, do people like the, the pun, silly, frivolity-focused titles, or do they want more descriptive? Um, most people were in for the fun. Yeah, you absolutely wanted that. Most people said, like, you know, the titles are not driving anything. Yep. Just have fun. So that you got me. <laughs> um, if it's the Persian Gulf of Tonkin scenario, then that critique of a reference to the 2002 AUMF, of course, makes sense. If it is instead what I was hinting at a moment ago, which yeah. is there actually is something quite real that happens within Baghdad, yep. uh, outside the green zone yep. or in the green zone for that yep. matter, uh, then it's then we're in the scenario where, okay, we do have to have a conversation about what exactly, if anything, is the lingering force of the O2AMF. Right. There's, there's a lot of people who feel that 
whatever else you want to say about the AUMF of 2002, uh, it didn't survive the the Saddam era and its aftermath. We're in a different era now. It can't still be out there. There's this other view that suggests, no, it's, it's always kind of kicking around and the administration under Obama, Bush, now Trump, no one has disclaimed it. And so until Congress succeeds in, in uh, killing it, it remains out there for... Although, Bobby, I mean, remind me, wasn't the Obama proposal to reform the AUMF packaged with the 2002 AUMF uh, Iraq AUMF repeal? Uh, I don't recall specifically, but I'm willing to stipulate that it was, in which case you just have further evidence of the administration viewing that it was still alive and kicking yeah, yeah. and no, needed quite. to be statutorily oh, no, turned no, no, off. I, I agree. It's just, it's just like, I mean, I, I, I don't remember if it was the Obama proposal or one of the more popular congressional proposals. Certainly but like, most of the reform proposals included floated, a they straight were, repeal of the 2002 AUMF, even as they're amending and modifying yeah, the 01 AUMF. Repeal, they were repeal and replace on yep. 01 and, and kill 02 while you're, while you're at it. Although you would argue, one might argue that the replacement is for both. Well, and yeah. indeed, that the replacement might moot the O2 AUMF. But yeah. so, so I, I think the 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 Iraq AUMF is only going to be relevant depending upon the specific nature of what we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but even that, to me, is stronger than the 2001 AUMF. I mean, we've talked before, I think, multiple times on this podcast about just how weak an argument I think it is that Iran is covered by the 2001 AUMF. I I understand that the counter argument is that Iran. You know, if the government can increasingly show evidence that Iran today is harboring yeah. um, al-Qaeda members, right, that maybe that gets you within the plain text. I just, you know, I mean, we're so far removed from what the, from what Congress actually said in September 2001. I just feel like that's, even if that were factually true, it's still to me a legal stretch. So so I'm in print in Lawfare and, and elsewhere, you know, criticizing arguments about using the one AMF against Iran and trying to draw the nexus. But I have to say, and I, and I did say this on the show a while back when we talked about the harboring provision, um, I do think that the language very much does create space, legitimate space for invoking the, AUN, the one AUMF if, and only if, but if there's actually good, strong evidence that some more than de minimis amount of harboring is actually going on, uh, it's not impossible to imagine, notwithstanding the obvious sectarian differences, that an enemy of my enemy approach uh, has perhaps quite unwisely led uh, the Molas to provide some very more than de minimis degree of, of protection for some amount of the the remnants or the the resurgent, perhaps, al-Qaeda leadership. I haven't seen evidence that persuades me of this yet, but uh, then again, I'm not in a good position, nor are any of us on the outside to really judge it. So it's possible, and certainly it'll be a huge red flag if we get any kind of like very visible rollout of, look, here's the latest deal. We now know that these three figures who are involved in oper- they still have some degree of direction and control of the organization. That'll be a big red flag that what's happening is public preparation of the public narrative or the public mind to understand that there will be an, a 2001 AUMF harboring claim then made. I just, I, I'm so wary of that claim. But I should also say, I mean, I, it's also, you know, it seems to me that we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that, you know, this is the same, these are the same folks who scrapped the JCPOA, right? President Obama's Iran deal, because they said they could get a better deal with Iran through more sanctions and tougher diplomacy. And it's like, you know, if this is just like leverage to get to that, fine. But, you know, <laughs> scrapping the JCPOA so we can go to war with Iran is not, to me, a good policy. Well, I think the the proponents of scrapping the JCPOA uh, and those who, who felt that it didn't do enough 
to prevent the Iranians from obtaining nuclear weapons capacity would say that it's much better to either to go down this path with the possibility that you're not going to get a negotiated deal. You might you might have regime change at the end. Um, I personally, I think that this is you know what we're not seeing here is any discussion about what would it look like, even assuming right. we were actually able, which is a big question mark, but assuming we were able to uh, to topple the regime, defeat it militarily. Which, uh, by the way, what is our what is our answer? Why do we think we've got a better plan in place here than we did in Iraq? Which you know the the aftermath went so poorly. What, why would anyone think it's going to go better this time? And I am not. I, I I wouldn't profess for a moment to be an area expert, but everything I've ever read suggests that a war with and against Iran would be dramatically more complicated, difficult, problematic, and everything else you could say than what happened in Iraq. So you know, I, I will say one thing to counter that. I, I there's there's a greater degree of homogeneity in Iran uh, across you know tribal sectarian divides than 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 was the case in Iraq. So for the aftermath, right? I mean, right. Yeah. But but again, I mean, but but this assumes we can win the bloody war, yeah. right? And yeah. Iran, I mean, Iran is not Iraq. Iraq. Yeah, I I don't doubt we could do it. I doubt very much that we have the domestic political will or the diplomatic rendering internationally yeah. to put together the type of sustained commitment to actually do it the way it would should be done were it to be done. In other words, and we, if you can't do that, no, no, dra- you, no dragons. <laughs> there's a lot. Well, as we all know, you know, uh, it turns out, you know, you only need one. So, that, um, but, hey, so, hey. So I guess I, I, I mean, I just, I, I find this whole, I mean, this conversation that you and I are having and have had before and will have again. Everything that's happened before, everything will happen the again. Wheel, the wheel turns. Ba- oh, I was going Battlestar Galactica there. Um, is the exact conversation that the Constitution contemplates Congress Absolutely. will have. No, there should there should be robust, robust and extended debate on the floor, in public, uh, repeatedly in both houses. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not I'm not I'm not holding my breath. No, no. There's a lot not to hold our breath about. Indeed. Uh, is there anything separate to say about uh, well, I guess we've kind of covered the Article Two aspects as well. You know, it's tempting to digress into the whole. By the way, that both parties' presidents have narrowly interpreted hostilities and war under the WPR yep. and Article yep. and the Constitution, respectively, uh, so narrowly that it excludes a lot of how we fight, but not what they're talking about here. Well, that's the thing, right? I mean, like for all the talk about just how bad the Obama administration's Libya hostilities opinion is, right? I mean. What we're ta- what 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 apparently John Bolton is comp- is contemplating is hostilities on any definition of the That's word. That's right. So so to the extent and and by the way, this comes back to Attorney General Barr, who in some of his writings expressed oh, an extremely broad view of exactly what's in the Article Two presidential uh, set of war powers versus what's in the Article One congressional set of war powers. Um, this line where. Obama and like many others had interpreted his administration had interpreted hostilities and war so narrowly as to exclude situations where we didn't have significant ground presence, which is which is a remarkable place to draw the line given how technology enables us to fight quite extensive armed conflicts without having a large ground presence. Uh, under that line, nonetheless, uh, any sort of ground invasion of Iran clearly clearly constitute both hostilities. And war in the constitutional sense, but there are those, and I think maybe our attorney general is one of them, which looms really, really large now, uh, who take the view that even when you're across that line, it's still not something where Congress's permission is required. This is the absolutist view that the war power is simply the president's, and if Congress doesn't like it, maybe you can use the power of the purse, but of course the president can veto that. And so, um, 
that that is another area where the current occupant of the attorney general seat looms pretty large because mm-hmm. if the question arises internally when does president trump have the authority on his own without congressional blessing to act uh, i think he'd be getting advice that he has robust and largely unconstrained authority but of course to come back to our point a moment ago i also think that that would be said in the alternative and that the first thing that will be said is hey the 01 and 02 amfs can be sort of alchemized into existing statutory blessing all right. Uh, Boo. There you go. Now there's a we should we should note international law. We should note the UN Charter. Uh, if the United States <laughs> use, remember them, um, if the United States uses force against Iran without a precipitating use of force, uh, and of course one might say like, oh, there's been there's been uses of force. Let's just take the clean slate approach and ask if the United States uses force without some fresh uh, violent provocation from the Iranians. Uh, it's obviously not going to be a UN Security Council scenario. No one's going to be able to make any kind of argument like that. Um, nothing under Chapter 7. It would have to be either a direct Article 51 self-defense claim, but we just stipulated we don't have a precipitated attack. Uh, it would then presumably turn into some sort of preemptive or preventive claim or a claim that Iran has used force against someone else and, and we're going to respond in collective self-defense at the request of that someone else. I don't know that they can get Baghdad to make that request, even right. if even if Baghdad had some sort of precipitating event to point to, some sort of armed attack to point to. Uh, Israel would be a very interesting scenario. And might there be a scenario where uh, the Netanyahu administration makes a request for collective self-defense joining them? Uh, <laughs> those are obviously very, very dangerous waters. Much more likely is that we do get a precipitating event that perhaps is of a certain limited nature that then gets talked about or framed in a broader way as something that could be depicted as an armed attack by the Iranians. Um, And what that would be comes back to your Persian Gulf of Tonkin scenario. So the same sorts of... Can I trademark that? Yeah, we're about to. Joel Joel Embiid apparently is trademarking the process. The process? Yeah. Uh, how do the how do the 76ers as an organization feel about one of their players trying to? Uh, I, I, is, that, is that just like a side payment to him? Yeah. <laughs> well, good luck marketing that. I'm, I'm sure people will be licensing the phrase "the process." Um, anyways, I, I guess my point is that the UN Charter arguments are gonna probably, if we get to this, they're gonna be the same sort of was this really a precipitating armed attack? It's similar in parallel, involving the same underlying facts as the domestic legal arguments. Steve, you look depressed. I just I find this all depressing. You find you find all our stuff depressing, except Game, Game of Thrones commentary. No, I find that depressing too. Okay. Um, well, should we turn to something that's sure to lift your spirits? <laughs> the military. The Court of Military Commission Review. It's been busy this week. What's happening down at Gitmo? Um, so let me just pull this up because I actually took notes. You what you you prepared? I prepared. I know. Oh I tried God. something different. Um, so there were three rulings that were released yesterday. Um, none of which I think are are especially. Um, mind-boggling or earth-shattering, but just sort of as as signs of the continuing trudge of of litigation and the military commission. So um, all three related to the 9-11 case. Um, so the first one was the CMCR turning away um, Al Baluchi's motion to disqualify the entire CMCR. Okay, um, shock. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, there was... so. There was more than nothing to this motion, but I'm not sure, right, that this was the, the, the wrong result. What was the gravamen of his argument that basically, they should I all mean, recuse? That that Judge Paul, Judge Pollard, who's now basically like the presiding judge, well, I don't know if he's the presiding judge, but anyway, Judge Pollard 
um, had sort of created a conflict when he went at, when he tried to obtain like an ethical opinion from DOD as opposed to from the administrative office of the U.S. courts and therefore tainted his ability to appoint other. Yeah, it, pretty thin. Not, not that surprising that that didn't work. It's a stretch. Um, and then there was uh, in Al Hasawi, there was the denial of a petition for mandamus to recuse Judge Perella, the for the moment trial judge in the 9-11 case, although not for much longer. Um, which I think actually had a little more to it. Like, I think there's a little more behind this motion. Basically that um, in light of Perella's time at DOJ working on cases with the, working on terrorism cases with the National Security Division, there might be sort of the potential for conflict between stuff to which he's privy in that capacity and stuff that he's now doing as a military judge. Um, what the CMC basically said was, you know, high standard for mandamus, blah, 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 you don't meet it. Okay. So not saying there's nothing there, but the procedural posture is such that you have to have a lot more than... Yeah, I mean, I think I think, I think Judge Fulton's opinion is pretty close to saying there's nothing there, but yeah. certainly nothing there against this procedural posture. Okay. That we, by the way, we'll to, when we come when we come to James Cole later, we should connect the dots indeed. between these, that, that's, these well, issues. Well, in, indeed. Um, and then there was in Al Balucci, um, the CMCR basically just continuing the stay that's in place surrounding this whole fight over the destruction of evidence related to the preservation or destruction of evidence related to um, the black site um, at which he was detained. Um, and tortured. And so there's this whole fight over like what the obligation on the government is to preserve evidence, start to provide access to defense counsel. That's still being litigated. The order yesterday is just preserving the right. stay. They extended the stay. Exactly. Yeah. So okay. so interesting developments all. Yep. You know, um, there's also Carol Rosenberg had a story about how we never talk about the third of the three pending military commission cases. Hadi. Hadi al-Iraqi. Yeah. Um, so Carol Rosenberg had a story about how um, one of the trial judges in, at an earlier stage in the Al-Iraqi case had also been applying for a job as an immigration judge. Uh, I, I am shocked to find still more gambling going on. Um, what is the deal? You know, <laughs> you know it, it's, by this point, right, Captain Raynaud is so beyond shocked, right? That, like he's, he, you know, I don't know how, I don't know how you play up that scene further, right? I'm shocked. There's gonna, I, no, I know I, we've, we've I, beaten I, that one. I'm, to no, but like it's, it's like that to the to the extreme. The immigration judge thing, it just, it just blows my mind. I can't believe this keeps coming up. Um, all right, so so the commissions trudge along, yep. and um, trudge. I guess, we will continue into... I mean, I think there's going to be more litigation here before we're done. <laughs> yes, I think there might be. There might be. Um, well, uh, good, good chance. Good chance. That's a safe prediction. Indeed. Um, what about, uh, should we uh, pivot over? Is there anything happening at the Supreme Court that is worth noting? Obviously, it's been busy, but not really, not much of a national security docket right now. No, I mean, I, I thought, so So, I, two really quick comments on what happened yesterday. So yesterday we had a whole bunch of orders and a couple of decisions so the decision, I mean, the biggest to me of the decisions was um, Franchise Tax Board versus Hyatt, um, where totally unrelated to this podcast, the court said that states are not entitled to sovereign immunity, sorry, that states are entitled to sovereign immunity in the courts of their sister states. Which overturns Nevada v. Hall. Yep, yep. Um, and I think what's more interesting about it is the sort of relatively, well, leaving aside the extent to which the 5-4 conservative majority makes many of the same historical mistakes that have long been ascribed to the Supreme Court's sovereign immunity jurisprudence. Um, there's also the rather brief treatment of stare decisis, 
Um, so this is what's got everybody spun up uh-huh. six ways to Sunday. With well, he- this combined with what's going on in a bunch of state legislatures right now. Sure. No, no. I'm, well, and, and, and combined with you know years and years of, of right. anxiety about the the fate of Roe v. Wade and, and Casey. So Breyer, in his in his dissent, has this line that was immediately highlighted. All all you know, you couldn't turn on Twitter. You still can't turn on Twitter without seeing you know images highlighting the text. Uh, and it, it draws attention to the question of, well, what other precedents might also in similar fashion be overturned? Um, I got to say, stare decisis arguments wear me out and attempts to draw these lines in a way that yields a neutral principle. Uh, boy, they are pretty darn tough. So you're anti-stare decisis? I'm not anti-stare decisis. <laughs> I'm, I'm anti-hypocrisy uh, about yeah, stare decisis. I agree with that. And I'm anti-starry eyes about stare decisis, where people, Ooh. you like that? Made that up just now. Starry eyes in the sense of people finding the, you know, not against their own interest occasions to suddenly be extremely focused on it, which yeah. is not, I'm not saying that everybody who's no, no, it's like, it's, like, here, it's, but, the, it's the same phenomenon as like when, when, um, you know, interest groups on one side try to get a justice on the other side to recuse because of something they've said or done previously. It's like, you know, it would be a lot more believable if you actually ask someone who is sympathetic to your position. Right. To uh, yeah. I just, you know, you don't often see, and I, I know there are counterexamples, yeah. but you don't often see people who are coming down hard for stare decisis against their own manifest most passionate interests. I think that's right. I, I will say, though, that I do think whatever – hypocrisy aside, I think I believe deeply there is value to stare decisis. Oh, I, I also – right because it yields predictability and legitimacy. in the legal system. And legitimacy. I, mean, I, I think it has the effect – if ever it were followed, right? Yeah. I think it has the effect yeah. of legitimizing, of 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 distancing judges from politicians. That's right. No, and to unpack it a little further, that to to the extent that you actually do get instances of judges who clearly might prefer a different outcome, but they don't go that way because though they could have overturned it, they didn't in the interest of the stability of the system. That does suggest something's going on here other than politics and policy. Yeah. Um, there is that. Well, of course, the countervailing concern is that if a decision, whatever the topic, is wrong, you know, Plessy v. Ferguson, on the books for a long time, that needed to be overturned. And right. by the way, if ever nominated, I'll be happy to say Brown v. Board <laughs> correctly decided. Uh, well, then you just disqualified yourself for a judgeship from this administration. Oh, I, I, <laughs> I'm, not too, I'm not too worried about that, yeah. nor, nor do I particularly want to be a judge. So uh, I kind of think we've got the best gig. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. Although you know, judges get to actually rule stuff and, and hold people that, in contempt. No, that, that's the worst. Then you've got all this accountability. We are utterly without accountability. I agree with that. Utterly without that, that would be also be a good episode title. Yeah, utterly without accountability or sta- or or starry decisis. Starry or starry, starry eyed starry decisis. decisis. Yeah. yeah. Um, so I, I I agree with everything you just said. I do think though I, I wrote a piece about a month or six weeks ago about sort of signs of what the Supreme Court's going to look like after Justice Kennedy. Um, and we talked about this on the podcast, focusing on the, the lethal injection protocol case, right? Mm-hmm. Buckley versus Precise. And I, the, the stare decisis thing scares me as a person because of the specific opinions I think are next on the chopping block, but as a Fed courts nerd, right? Because I think, you know, the perception will increasingly be that a court that is unfaithful to stare decisis is a political court. Um, and, you know, I'm worried about delegitimizing the court as an institution, even if I don't like what it's doing. 
Yeah. That's it, the tension for me. And, of course, I, I'm sure every listener is tracking the larger context. We didn't actually say it, but, of course, the, the core thing that is driving all this concern is specifically concerned that the new major, the newest lineup on the court is going to be willing to overturn Casey and, by extension, Roe v. Wade. So we shall see because, as you said a moment ago, there are state legislators that are uh, creating vehicles that could become that case. We I mean, shall Al- see. Alabama last night passed – or the legislature, I'm sorry, yeah. approved a law. It hasn't been uh, – Governor Ivey hasn't acted on it yet. Um, that basically prohibits all abortions and makes it a, a, a felony uh, punishable up to 99 so, years in prison. It's, uh, it draws the line at heartbeat, right? Uh, yeah. Right. Which is, for, for Roe and Casey nerds, uh, this is, uh, it sounds pre viability. It's a line that's pre viability and therefore uh, different in kind from what the Roe Casey framework not would only, allow not, states Not only to that, do. but at the risk of getting into the, the weeds. I mean, there's a difference between. So, fetal heartbeat laws, which are very popular these days, right? That you can't, abortions are not allowed after you can detect a fetal heartbeat. It's a big difference. Um, between whether the fetal heartbeat law is a detection based on a transvaginal ultrasound, right, or or detection based upon an abdominal ultrasound, right? Yeah. Because one, the trans, I think the I think the transvaginal ultrasound you can detect a fetal heartbeat as early as six weeks. Yeah, I think that uh, these sorts of things are going to start looming pretty large yeah. in the presidential election. Yeah. yeah. Um, so among other things, now turning away from the court and towards the Justice Department, let's do a little National Security Division rundown because we have a quartet of pretty interesting things going on uh, from the past week. Uh, well, can I say one more thing about the Supreme Court? Really oh, yeah, quickly? please. Just on that note, yesterday was also this really interesting anniversary. Yesterday was the 50th anniversary of the last day on which a majority of the justices had been appointed by Democratic presidents. I saw your tweet about that. So Fortas was there then. Um, yeah, it's been a long time. And, and, and it's an interesting reflection on how so many of the decisions that are now that are today vilified and pilloried by conservative commentators um, as being part of the Warren Court weren't actually the yeah. Warren Court. Well, you're right. No, so the, there's... Clearly a way of using that particular lens to appreciate uh, ideological transition and drift within nominally identical political parties over time. The Republican Party uh, of today obviously is in the midst of such a moment, uh, but it's been in the midst of longer term change for a long time. And you can't just say, well, as Republicans then in the 70s, Republicans now, and think you're talking about the same set of uh, ideological and policy commitments. Uh, speaking of commitments, that segue doesn't work at all. Let's just jump right to it. National Security Division has secured an injunction under the Foreign Agents Registration Act against a company in Florida that was basically rebroadcasting Sputnik, the Russian government propaganda channel. Um, and I think that's an excellent uh, move on the part of, of NSD. Uh, it's kind of amazing that people can be in business doing this sort of thing for a while without registering as a foreign agent. Um, that's, you know, a nice, nice one by NSD, uh, separately, another one in the general realm of international relations being litigated in our courts, we've got an, uh, an admiralty condemnation action underway. Uh, I guess it's libeling the vessel and uh, seeking condemnation of a North Korean freight vessel, big, big bulk, uh, carrier ship, um, that the United States says the North Koreans had been loading with coal to export in violation of both UN and US sanctions, and also to illegally import back into the country heavy machinery for North Korea. And the best part of this, of course, is the name of the vessel, the Wise Honest. That's the name, the Wise Honest. Um, why not? Sure. Uh, <laughs> Steve, if they succeed in getting it condemned, there'll be an auction. Let's buy it. Make it like the podcast party barge. 
Do you have some secret pot of money I don't know about? No, nah, we'll try. We'll put we'll put it in for reimbursement through the school. <laughs> see, we'll see if that goes. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like I feel like there are state laws that we'd be violating at that point. Well, you know, we'll we'll use it for recruiting events or something. Uh, I could. We could station it in Corpus Christi, take it out for, you know, off the beach at Port A, Party Barge. Um, it's uh, it's interesting. It got uh, loaded in a North Korean port, went to Indonesia. It actually was uh, seized there, impounded in Indonesia. It's been there since, I guess, about um, April of last year. So uh, we'll see what happens. Just another, another piece on the chessboard, kind of a pawn-like piece. But that's the first instance I know of where a North Korean vessel's actually been seized. Uh, if we start getting more and more cooperation internationally from the Indonesians and others in actually acting on intelligence that reveals these sorts of sanctions-busting vessels, uh, that is really going to put a crimp on their ability to do anything uh, oceanically. They'll have, to, they'll have to ship out through China, which, you know, who knows whether that's going to work for them. Third thing, United States versus Daniel Hale. Um, Hale was in the Air Force. Not, not Nathan Hale. Not def, definitely not <laughs> Nathan Hale. Uh, this is an Air Force enlisted person who was uh, assigned to NSA as an analyst and then deployed downrange into the theater in Afghanistan at Bagram Air Base working targets, uh, so in a targeting cell of some kind, and, and is somebody who was not very, according to the indictment and other stories and reports that are coming out, they're not very keen on the U.S. military mission to begin with and became very uh, unhappy about what uh, he learned or believed about U.S. Uh, airstrikes uh, on a targeted basis. And then when back in the United States, met Jeremy Scahill at, uh, of The Intercept at a, at a book event for Jeremy in D.C. They began communicating through uh, an encrypted app, and eventually he started passing along classified information, some of which ended up in reporting in The Intercept, some of which ended up in a subsequent book by Jeremy. Um, now this guy's been charged with a variety of offenses, and it's all the things you would expect. I don't see any of that as legally unusual or anything other than exactly what those laws are meant to do, which is to prevent persons who have access to classified information information from on an unauthorized basis, passing them along. Uh, what you don't see here is any hint that they're going to do anything vis-a-vis -vis The Intercept or Jeremy Scahill. And it's interesting to contrast that and compare it to the Chelsea Manning and Assange scenario. Um, but when you when you look at the two side by side, you can, you can well imagine that if there was anything going on uh, from The Intercept and Jeremy's perspective in helping uh, Hale the insider, to understand how best to communicate, how best to circumvent security controls, etc. The Assange indictment is, is exactly the sort of the, the scary case for the reporter side of this arrangement to make you wonder, when might you be hit with a conspiracy charge? But again, there's no hint, no one's suggesting that's going to happen here, but it looms large, it looms in the background, and I'm surprised people aren't talking about it more. Uh, do, you, do you see anything improper in what's going on here or no, problematic? I, mean, I think so. The only thing I thought was weird was I thought the indictment um, was a little unusual to me, Bobby, from having read a bunch of these indictments uh -huh. in that it, it was not at all trying to obscure what the journalism outfit was. 
um, right? That that some. I mean, and and the government's under no obligation to do so. I mean, I don't want to say that this is like yeah. you know wrongful, right? But it's just like the indictment was a little more forthcoming in unnecessary details that would help you know curious gawkers figure out who. Certainly, everybody knew instantly. Right. Um, yeah. Well, I, I, for my part, I have no problem with making clear in these indictments that you know, for anyone who's who's bothered by what uh, Mr. Hale did, certainly there's there's a fuller picture of understanding that that the intercept and Jeremy Scahill were involved in this in an active way. Uh, but that doesn't mean they should be prosecuted. Um, that's a different, yeah, that's yeah, a different no, proposition. It's also, by my count, this is now the third um, leak to the intercept that has led to um, uh, serious <laughs> charges against the leakers. Yeah. It would be, you know, so we all know that, you know, people do leak to the intercept. And we also know that the administration under both Obama and Trump have quite properly been doing more since Snowden. To try to do better at detecting when this sort of thing goes on, um, I'm not surprised that we're seeing indictments as a result. And every time there is one, it's a, the idea, certainly from the Justice Department perspective, is to create a chilling effect on leakers. That's that's by design, yep. and I think actually exactly what they're supposed to be doing. Um, so one more. Uh, Speaking of former Justice Department officials, a senior former Justice Department official is involved in the representation of Huawei. Well, maybe. Or, or, well, has been involved, right? So what's the story there and what should we make of it? What's going on? So the last Friday, um, the government filed this really remarkable motion um, in the Brooklyn Federal District Court, the court where the Huawei prosecution is is pending, um, to disqualify James Cole as counsel for Huawei. Um, now, Cole was a DAG, right? He was Deputy Attorney General from 2010 to 2015. Um, and the the motion is remarkable in a number of respects. What is what is abundantly clear from the motion is the government is actually really, really worried about this. Um, so, for example, the motion includes – we have the public redacted version, right? But the motion repeatedly says, you know, if you – dear district court, if you're not willing to resolve this based solely, you know, without releasing – we're going to withdraw the motion, right? Um, Wait, without releasing what? The classified, like you know, if you're if you're not content to do this um, uh, um, <clears throat> in camera, right? Like if you're not content to, with, like oh, I we, see. We don't want any of this information coming. So out. you mean so the information the government put forward to say, look, this is why right. Cole has prior so experience sensitive. on this topic that's he should not be involved in this case. But it's so sensitive that actually the government says at various points we would withdraw this motion before. We'd rather let him proceed rather than let it. Well, yeah. So that sounds exactly right to no, me. No, all I agree. But but Bobby, it's not every day that the government does that, right? No, I mean, no, that's right. Like that's a sign. I mean, so you know, we've talked before about like DOJ's institutional credibility, right? There are things DOJ does in cases like this to basically tell the judge, like, hey, judge, this is legit. Like, yeah. you know, this is a, yeah, this is how serious we are. Yeah. Now, okay. So, and I made a snarky comment earlier that one reason why this all seems so novel and unusual is, you know, since since when does someone at that rank of the Justice Department turn around and represent a foreign company or, you know, as, let alone one that the, the whole background context is busting U.S. sanctions that he would have been involved in the prosecution of people, you know, and uh, violating those sanctions back at the relevant times? I, do, I think it's extraordinary, extraordinary that he actually has taken on this representation or attempted to. So I l- l- listen. I I don't disagree with that. I think there might be more of a revolving door than than that comment might suggest. Like I yeah. think I think there's a yeah. there's a long tradition of high level government officials from both parties 
right? Leaving government and then going to work for the people they were regulating. And, and, and cashing in often for, for foreign, especially uh, representing them in the Washington uh, practice of representing foreign sovereigns. I mean, Greg Craig just got indicted. Uh, exactly. Right? For, for well, okay. And, anyway. and to be clear, you won't be surprised when I say, like, yes, I object to all these people cashing in in this way when specifically they're taking on a representation on a matter they actually did have some prior, you know, at least indirect involvement in. It seems it seems pretty on point in this case. So here's the thing. So, so what, I, what I find interesting about the motion, which I encourage folks to read, um, is the government makes two different arguments about why there's a conflict. Um, and, you know, it's impossible to weigh the merits of the arguments because we're not privy to the right. factual predicate. But they're interested in their difference, right? So the first argument is that the court can have no confidence that Cole will not use, whether intentionally or not, information obtained in the redacted investigation redacted against the government, his former client. Right. So in other words, right, there's the, the government's worried about Cole yeah. using stuff he knows yeah. to make it harder for the government to prosecute Huawei. Um, that makes perfect sense to me. Yep. The second argument I find more interesting. The government has an interest in a fair trial and obtaining a conviction that can be defended on appeal and from collateral attack. Those interests are at risk if Cole represents the defendants because they cannot give the informed consent required to validly waive Cole's conflicts. Wait, who can't give the informed consent? Huawei. Right. Specifically, Cole cannot explain to his clients the numerous limitations on the kinds of information he can share and the actions he can take on behalf of Huawei in light of his prior work as DAG. So here's the problem I have with that argument. Right. Is, is this a claim that he'll basically end up being a bad lawyer, a bad lawyer? He'll, it'll be ineffective as instance of counsel. Like he'll, he'll have one hand tied behind his back. And then it's like we're going to get through this whole process, get convictions or what have you. And then it's going to come unwound because right. he's put himself in an ethical So I got to say, I, I have I have problems with this argument. Right. I don't uh, assuming assuming a valid factual predicate for the first uh, argument. Sure, yeah. Fine by me, right? I have problems with this argument because um, by that logic, right, what every attorney um, who has a security clearance and who is in possession of classified information that may or may not be relevant to his client's case, would the, you know, the government is, is, is oh. implying that there's a problem any time um, an, an attorney with uh, access to classified information knows something relevant to the case that his client doesn't. But and we can't have convey it. and can't convey it. We have hundreds of examples of that in terrorism prosecutions, right? Where we allow security cleared defense lawyers to vindicate the rights of their clients, whether through SIPA or other procedural protections. That's it's it's very interesting. That okay, so I find that I would certainly want to know if it's right that that actually is the spillover. Then I'd certainly agree that it proves the argument proves too much, uh, and it's kind of a gloss. I mean, yeah. the core concern is not that oh, that. That's collateral. The core concern is, does he in fact have this information, in which case he's conflicted? Which is the first argument, and I'm yeah. fine with that. But just the notion that a defend, the, the notion that we're going to have a problem with a security clear defense lawyer who knows more than his clients do about the, some of the information that's classified, right, to me is inconsistent with the entire idea of having security clear defense lawyers, which, by the way, is necessary. Right. For, it happens all the time in terrorism To cut a lot of the Gordian knots that would otherwise yeah. arise Think in these cases. Think about Misawi. Exactly so. So, yeah, that's so, right. so I, I, you know, my, my I hope, I, 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 I can't measure the factual predicates, right? I assume they're serious if the government's going to these lines. Yeah. I very much hope that if this motion is resolved in the government's favor, it's resolved on the first argument, not the second. And I bet it will be. Yeah. But you're, you're right. Okay, that's interesting. I hadn't spotted that issue. Good, good issue spotting. Woo-hoo! Too bad you're not taking your Fed courts exam right now. They've got a uh, uh, 25 more minutes. Okay, we better wrap up, <laughs> uh, which is convenient because we've, we've covered all the serious stuff we want to talk about. Let's talk 
Game NBA of... draft lottery. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, game game of draft picks. In the game of draft picks, you either win or you die. <laughs> well, in the Knicks die. You, you either win or you're the Knicks. Although, let me say though, you know, they're going to get a good player at the at number the, four, at number three, three, right? Oh yeah, they're going yeah, to get, get a good what, player. Cam Reddish, John Morant, maybe. They're no, going to John Morant's going number two. Okay, so uh, Cam Reddish is the projected yeah. number three pick. They'll get a good pick, but it's just it's an, not Zion. The, the The Knicks' future now depends on is Kevin Durant really coming there? I gotta say, I can I, answer that question. No, no. like <laughs> if you're Kevin Durant, why in the world would you go from you know core contention? By the way, looking like they're probably you know quite possibly going to win the title again. Why would you leave that and go to a team that, at the very best, is desperately trying to rebuild around you? It's not like they got all the other pieces. Um, I think that's pretty dicey. That said, maybe he just digs New York, likes being on the East Coast more than the West Coast. Um, so, but so I mean, you know, he's from DC, yeah, and so, yeah, I, I've so always thought, I always thought the Wizards were the right place for Durant <laughs> to end up. Uh, Listen, yeah. <laughs> I mean, lo and behold, right? Dare I say it? The Wizards are a far more functional franchise right now than the Knicks. Than the Knicks. Well, that that much I'll grant you. That right. is true. Or he goes to Brooklyn. Yeah, I do. I will say, despite being a Western Conference guy through and through, you know, I just, I'm weary of how bad the East has been for so long. They were, they're a little more interesting this year, but not much more interesting. Um, I mean, it's like you know, Giannis is going to take over the world, right? So, Plus, by the way, speaking of predictions, do you remember our NBA oh, yeah, season prediction? Yeah, you you had Milwaukee. Didn't I had you? Milwaukee, and I had Giannis as the MVP. Yeah, yeah, you nailed that. I'm, I'm sure I predicted the Spurs. Then eh. <laughs> maybe Demar Derozan. I actually don't think you did. I think you predicted the Spurs going to the playoffs, and that's yeah. Why, I at least had the, that, and, and that's the lunch bet I lost. That's right. And you know what was sad was that that was considered going out on a limb back at the time. Um, um, all right, so Thrones. Okay, so Thrones. So all right, by the way, uh, if you haven't yet watched episode what five. five of season eight, now's a good time to stop, unless you just don't care. Take some time off from work and go watch it. It yeah. was, in my opinion, it was awesome. And and I take that position having trashed episode four. Uh, so I loved it. Uh, you, you, I think you love you, you some were, war crimes? Uh, that does not follow from what I said at all. Uh, I thought, I'll, I'll tell you what I liked about it. Okay. Uh, I, have, I have some favorite things. I thought that there were some of the finest moments of acting mm-hmm. And some, some just, and combined often with really excellent cinematography and editing that I, I, I thought would probably it's probably gonna get some awards. So, um, the scene with Tyrion and Jamie in the tent when they say that goodbye. Scene. That scene. I mean, Tyr- Peter Dinklage yeah, yeah, no. deserves some kind but of also, award. But also the way that. that the way that's in the stage where Tyrion for the first time is actually standing He's over taller. Jamie. Yeah. Yep. And it reverses the situation yep. they've been. Yep. It, it both mirrors when when. When Jamie once before had been tied to uh-huh. the post, and, no, no. and Peter Dinklage in this whole episode, right? When, yeah, he when, was, when he puts his when he puts his hand on Varys right yes, before Varys yes. gets executed. Yes, Dinklage has has been, in my opinion, has not been that great, and in part because they're giving him bad lines yeah. and, it making, and they're making him stupid. They're making him do stupid like blunderbuss, and then they brought it all back, and it was like this really refreshing well, listen, reminder remember how great it was early on in episode three. Right, my favorite scene was was him and Sansa. Right, I yeah, mean, like, yeah, the, yeah. right, the, yeah, right. No, I, so, so in an episode that I actually did not like, I thought the best single scene yeah. was Tyrion and Jamie when he talks about when yes. I was a child yes. and everyone thought I was a mustard. Yes, tears to your eyes. That yes. was fantastic. Yes, um, that, I, so that's why we watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, exactly. Right. That that made it all worthwhile. I liked many other things nearly as much. I loved the Clegane Bowl and the really? cinnamon. I loved it. I loved the way it ended. It was so. It, it was unfolded. such fan. It was such fan fiction. It was like such fan fan satisfaction. Well, Clegane dies. Fan I mean, service. Sandor dies, yeah. and he's and he's unable to directly kill him. I, 
you know, so so what I love there I, was no way they weren't going to fight, and there was no way it wasn't going to be something kind of fan service. And they were, everybody right, wants and them they were, to fight. Well, once they fight, right? So so it's interesting. What I loved about that scene was the setup, not the actual yeah, fight. Like, like the cinematography so, on the stairs. No, but also setting Arya off. Yeah, yeah, where Arya actually calls him by his well, first that, name. That's my third favorite scene. Arya and Arya the and the Hound. Scene. Yeah, that when he releases her and he takes the weight off of her, this, the demons have been driving her since the since basically the end of the first season. Yeah, since the last time Arya was in King's Landing. It was. I thought it was a really great full circle deal that realized his character. It was his most human moment, and he has this fatherly hand on her shoulder talking to her. It it was great. But um, so the fight on the stairs, I thought cinemat- cinematography wise, it was. It was lovely. It was beautiful. Uh, it almost it, felt like the 300. They were kind of getting a little bit of that sort of like tinted view of things. I thought it was also a bit like, you know, um, two people fighting while the world around them is collapsing. Like the end uh-huh. of episode three of Star Wars where yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. where Anakin's fighting um, um, Obi-Wan. Well, and of course, it, it was all, I think, very purposely. It was very homage-ish to Star Wars. You had, first of all... The, you know he he look he gets right. the helmet knocked off it's sort of a yep there it's you an are. actually scary version of Anakin <laughs> um there's the the uh the dual setup with the profile shot yep. that harkens back to multiple Star By the Wars way, scenes the the, Cer- the look on Cersei's face as she walks past them oh it is <laughs> and, and you know that's she's such a great actress yeah, yeah. and she and that's a tough scene yeah. like how do you how do you act and she's like I mean it's Bye, almost, it's almost <laughs> comical it was great how she she danced around it uh, the demise of Kyburn. Was I thought that was great. That's he, he's a villain. He got a good villainy end right there. Very and of course it's always been a Frankenstein and Frankenstein's monster dynamic, yeah, yeah. and so it ends the right way in that respect as well. I mean, I think yeah, people are dying everywhere. You know, um, so here's my problem. Right, my problem is as we discussed last week. I think it was obvious that they were setting up Danny for this turn toward, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, they either, were, they either were baiting us to believe it or just setting it up. And, and, and it was the latter. But so here's the problem. <clears throat> I, I, I am one of those who believes it actually is consistent all the way through if you go back that Danny actually has these really bad impulses that were moderated by her advisors and the advisors yeah, have gone down. And, yeah. Right? Um, but at the moment the bells toll, right, mm-hmm. um, even if crazy Danny, right, mad Danny, mad queen Danny um, – is inclined to not, you know, abide the truce, right? Is uh, is is inclined to violate the terms of the surrender and kill civilians, right? Double war crime day. Yeah. Um, what is stopping well, you, her? You got to. Well, okay. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, she has, she has, she has destroyed all the scorpions, mm-hmm. right? So uh, her dragon faces no meaningful threat, right, from mm-hmm. the ground. What is the point of burning the city at that point, as opposed to what she does twenty minutes later, which is just go burn the finally? Red, yeah, no, she, go she goes around keep. killing civilians for and, no reason. No, right. So where, you're whereas, clearly whereas, supposed whereas, to think it's madness, right? Whereas she still goes and kills. Uh, you know, eventually, she, had, she goes. Eventually, attacks, she gets yeah. to the Red Keep, which, by the way, has the effect of eventually killing Cersei. Right. So. I completely agree that there's there's I don't think they're trying to claim there was any uh, operational logic to what she then. But started even emotional. Doing. Well, like I think the, the, whole, the whole claim is supposed to be that she's gone mad with vengeance, right? Right, but but right, but but if I'm so I, I've never been mad with vengeance, but if I'm mad with vengeance <laughs> and I'm riding a dragon, <laughs> oh my god, <laughs> somebody please go create that image. And I for see, us. <laughs> and, and I see, and I see my my arch enemy. Right? Don't you go straight for the enemy? Don't you go straight for the enemy? Like yeah. well, like this was like you know this was like um, Luke Sky another Star Wars reference like Luke Skywalker do, going through the trench. Like what? Why aren't you going straight? You know why bother attacking the surface cannons? Why aren't you going straight? for the exhaust vent. Well, so... Um, By the way, yeah, that was that, good. That was real good. Nice <laughs> analogy. I'm with you. So I think you're supposed to... I, 
I like to think that Benioff and Weiss, if here, would say she has gone mad with Let's vengeance them. against. Yes, Michelle. Um, mad with vengeance against all of the either all the people of Westeros in general, these people who don't love her, who are rejecting her, and now this whole thing's falling apart, and just lumping in the civilians with everyone else, at least in King's Landing, if not elsewhere. Remember the last episode, they try to set this up by saying, why aren't the people there turning against her? Yeah. They're not turning against her. So she kind of does this very illogical thing in the prior episode, which wasn't a very compelling piece of writing, by the way, because it's so illogical, of like blaming them for not toppling the, the way that the slaves and Marine had done. Right. Um, I think this is all a problem caused by the decision of the, the producers to have this just be six episodes and have to race through all the development yep. instead of having a long, slow buildup where they can give us more, more, more moments where yes. it's persuasive that she, but, accurately or not, is blaming the civilians. As opposed to that crazy quick scene where it's like, hey, John, are you my lover? And he's like, no, nah, you're yeah. my queen. Then it shall be fear. Then it shall be fear. Yeah. It's like, right. you know, that that's, there's like weeks of emotional development right. crammed into two minutes. And also, so, a couple of missed opportunities to make it resonate even within the two minutes they had. So, for example, so she's up there, it, the bells are ringing and all that. Well, why not have some kind of provocation, even if it's not obviously enough to just... Right, someone throws a rock does. at her. Yeah, at least have someone throw, at least have a civilian throw a rock or... Throw or a, a soldier. Throw a spear. Well, have it be a civilian so it, it ah, makes more sense, right? Indeed. Have somebody do something or... Anything other than, well, it looks like you've won. You've totally dominated everybody's surrendering. Everyone's surrendering. I think I'm just now going to start killing civilians. It, d- it doesn't hold true because they didn't have time to try to build out the case. And they just went with sort of a, eh, Targaryens, they go mad. Meanwhile, how would you feel if sometime over the last six years you had named your daughter Daenerys or, or Khaleesi? Well, I think you get, you get what you deserve <laughs> if you're naming your kids after uh, after uh, TV Evolved. show characters. I, I didn't read to the end of the books. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, okay, so interestingly, uh, listening to Oysters, Clamps, and Cockleshell, uh, I, I learned something I did not know, which is it's at least widely rumored, if not uh, believed to be the case, that basically HBO and uh, George R. R. Martin had a serious falling out where Martin actually could finish these books, but he's not doing it on purpose because he's just letting these guys who no longer are cooperating with each other um, he's letting the HBO show kind of go with the story where they want to, and then he's going to take the the books are going to potentially go in quite different ways. Well, that'll be weird. It'll be an alternate reality. It's going to be kind of like a you know a separate universe we're going to get to live in. I can't wait. I hope it's really true. Does that mean I have to read all the books though? Oh, I, I, wait, I got, have you not read the books? No, I, I got. I, okay. I, I, I finally gave up in the middle of the third one. No, you should never give up. These books are amazing. They're so much better than the show. I had so much trouble keeping track of the 4,566 different characters. I Okay, I find it very hard to believe you have trouble keeping track of anything. You just need to have less on your plate. Priorities are all wrong, my friend. Um, so another sequence I'm interested in your take on. The extended 9-11 sequence. Yeah. Um, so it was an, I thought artistically it was it was very well done. It was really powerful. Yeah. Um I you know, the mom and the little girl I thought was very Schindler's list. Yeah. Um yeah. like, you know mm-hmm. so they because, were uh, the mother the mother child dynamic or duo is is a very iconic no, archetype. No, 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 but like the sort of have them show up at the beginning of the yeah, and, yeah. and like yeah. right track. By the way, you know she's holding the little white horse. I, 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 yeah. I, 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 um You're on the internet too. <laughs> Indeed. Um, um, so I, I also thought I, I like the parallelism of Arya at the end of season one, right? Trying to get out, trying to escape a mob in King's Landing, yeah, and Arya at the end uh, of season. Yeah, there she is, is again. There she is again. Um, you know, I, that will work for me if next week 
they give Arya time to sort of react and process what she yeah. just went through. Yeah, yeah. Because right? like, like, so like, like, give her some PTSD from this thing. Right. The question is like, why was was Arya just there so that we had someone to see the see it through? Right. Was she just our... or is or is her experience of surviving that somehow going to like you know she still has someone with green eyes to kill, right? Yeah, it's, well, it's interesting because it also has to who, intermix who with... Who has green eyes? Oh, uh, yeah. But it also has to intermix with... By the way, so if if if, if the denouement the final episode is like Arya getting in there to kill Danny, it's like, uh, that's not very interesting at this point, frankly. Um, I hope they have something more clever in mind. And I'll give you my pet theory. No one's going to kill her. She's going to go back to uh, Marine. What? That John's going to... Ba- she She's going to say, like, you know what? This whole thing's... A- Total disaster. She's gonna have a little bit of redemption for her own, like loathing herself a little bit for the what she's only become. Th- her whole life, I know. Her and whole it, life has been organized and how'd that, around the and idea how'd that, that the, work out for her. That's why she went mad because it already didn't work. Well, except that, except that now, I mean, she's she she has the crown. She has the throne in her grasp. In in the wreckage of the city where she just killed all the civilians and everyone hates her and everyone thanks to Varys's. Uh, messages. Everyone knows she's not, in fact, the true heir, and the guy who is, so is now like, well, now so, is not. So this is be the question, right? Which is Varys. So so this is you're on the internet, right? So there's a difference between the message Varys is writing at the beginning of the episode and the message he's writing in Burns when they come to arrest. Oh, there him. is. Do we yes. know what's, what's, yes. what's the there's just a different different wording, right? And so the theory is that Varys got at least one of those messages out before the one that was burned that killed that that, that what right before he was killed. Yeah, but what's the significance? Because the, well, so the, the other one is, said that he was the uh, true heir. No, I know, but so the question. Is who who did he send that to? Yeah, I, I so I think the the whole the cat's going to be completely out of the bag. John's obviously not going to be with her and supporting her. I don't. The catch is that there's no way for John unless they do a sort of a Deus Ex Machina and have like a Dornish army of two hundred thousand show up <laughs> along with everyone else. Yes, there, there is still he that, doesn't have there, the military force. There to is win. still that inexplicable reference to the new Prince of Dorne. I know that between Sitting that and like the the ridiculous apparent false trail with. Braun, these, <laughs> these deals like simplify the story. Quit adding these little deals. I don't know. There's still one Lannister, right? For Braun to to. Yeah, yeah. So I I don't think that it's going to be sort of like so. There's another battle and yet another huge military no, no, no. conflict, and they don't have anything to they, take. They've down only the got an, they've only got an hour now, right? Yeah. So so right. So I think the real question is what happens with Danny. Um, so my my out of the ballpark prediction is, is that she goes back to Marine. She, she doesn't stay and rule with an iron fist. She doesn't somehow convert and apologize and then rule wisely. She doesn't get killed by Arya or anyone else. She she leaves. Interesting. Yeah, that I think that'd be an interesting ending if they can pull it off. Hey, Dario Naharis is waiting for her back there. <laughs> she used to like him. Okay. Hmm. Interesting. What about Sansa? What happens to Warden in the North and uh, King Gendry at King's Landing, or the new, the new, uh, the new? Wait. So after everything we've learned, we're we're, we're going to restore the the ridiculous Baratheon claim to the throne. Hey, they got it. What are they? They're going to make Sansa. She's not going to come to King's Landing. And no. Winterfell's probably not going to be the capital. I mean, I mean, you could have this ridiculous like John's the king on the throne and Sansa's the, the warden, warden in the north. north. Yeah, they could do that. I mean, that would be the fan service ending that makes the most sense here, right? That if you go with my theory, that but then John needs a wife. Um, why? Because he has to make he has to make little little Targaryen babies. No, he should do it the Roman way and pick the most qualified person in a doctor. <laughs> oh, um, <laughs> he, he can. Oh, he could he could have Sam. Sam, you know, poor Sam. Well, Sam, Sam could be the 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 maester that that advises him. So this is, you know, my question is uh, the, the the last thing I want to say because I think we're we're probably beating this into the ground, right? <laughs> um, is to me the real question about next week's episode is is the principal locus of events King's Landing or is it Winterfell? 
Um, right? Because yeah. the preview, which is which is beautifully cryptic, King's is all King's Landing, yeah. but in a way that looks like it all could have been from one like the op- the preview for next week's episode could really have been the first five minutes, right? And the more that it's um, said at Winterfell, the more interesting I think it gets. The more it's like, oh, after the ashes, you know. Tyrion, Danny, and John and Davos are trying to figure out what happens now. It'll be hard to resolve if they're not in person. There's got to be face to face John and Danny arguments and all the rest. And also, how are they going to know that Cersei's dead? Yeah, like yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, because remember, Jamie's plan that Tyr- Tyrion thinks that Jamie was going want, to. Yeah, I think they got out to what take her to um, somewhere. Bravos, Bravos, yeah. um, right? If they don't find the body. How are they going to – so, you know. Well, no, because they'll find the they'll find Euron lying there on the beach saying, I stabbed Jamie, and, he, and they didn't come back out here. Oh, and then he dies. Like how Jamie survived, like, you know, multiple mortal stab you, wounds. A, a lo- when it's convenient for a plot, people can handle a lot. And Seriously. when it's not, they just drop dead at the first stab. It's remarkable how that works. Yes, yes. TV. Um, so, anyway, all this to say, I, I guess I'm just – I'm – I – I, I thought this was the best episode of the season. I still don't like where we are. And I don't like, the, like, the, the major plot point twist was, you know, Danny losing all of her SHIT and becoming a, a war criminal. Because war criminals are bad. So I, I, I have no problem with— she, She's ceded the moral high ground to Cersei. I have no problem with her having taken a dark turn in part because uh, her claim ultimately is, is invalid, first of all, by her own terms. And secondly, it was, you know, dynastic claim is a lame claim anyways. I'm, I'm in the Varys camp. I mean, what, what justification is there really for her? It had to be the claim, the justification that led Tyrion to support her. And that's out the window. So why should she be supported? All right, so let me um, ask the Varys question. So what's best for the realm? What's best for the realm looks like it's John in King's Landing with Sansa in the north and everybody trying to rebuild after the devastation they've all just gone through. Because they've also just eliminated a lot of you know alternative characters. Well, they have. I mean, right, we're we're running that now. I'm like, actually, I'm I'm all for the Prince of Dorne. Seems like a wonderful. <laughs> I'm I'm impressed with what I've been hearing about the Prince of Dorne. Um, never heard a bad word about him. What what was the? What was they the, dare not speak his name. What was the what was the property that Tyrion offered Bronn? Was it? Um, uh, oh, a high garden. Yeah, yeah. No, so some like somebody's in charge. Like high garden's supposed to be the wealthy breadbasket. Like, well, somebody took over there. I guess Braun. <sighs> Good times. All right. We'll have fun with this next time. No doubt about it. Um, really quickly before we go, let me also one last plug. Um, I saw the this week we had the second episode of the five-part HBO miniseries Chernobyl. Um, and I thought the second episode was like – Almost as good as the first, which is saying something because the first episode was insane. Um, so if you can handle, if you can stomach a little bit of, you know, um, depressing, disaster, real world stuff, um, it's it may be worth your time. It's, if you if you listen to this show, well, surely indeed. you can. It's so well done. The acting. I mean, if you can if you can suspend, if you can get around the fact that all of the actors are British. Um, Right, because they didn't. You know, there's such this thing about how like Western actors cannot do good Russian accents, right? And so, you know, HBO yeah. um, they made this conscious choice. You know, we'll just have British act. You know, we'll drop any yeah. pretense of Russian accents. We'll just do it. We'll just do, we'll do it British. Oh, they're all done with British accents. Yes, the, the, I love how you can do that in the United States. It's like we just kind of read it as well. It's foreign and it's and it's well acted. Right, right. <laughs> it's actually it's pretty brilliant, it's, the it's psychology of it. Um, all right, well, you've persuaded me because you steered me right on True Detectives Season 3, and even though we don't actually, all appearances to the contrary, like we rarely have TV time, I'm going to try to sell uh, Heather on Chernobyl, um, which sounds pretty crazy. <laughs> it's pretty dark. All right, cool. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, uh, so, you know, till next week, he's at Bobby Tenzin, I'm at, I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. 
We are at NSL Podcast. Um, you know, don't go anywhere near Iran, everybody. Stay safe out there. Adios.